Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of Frankly Speaking Baseball here on TobaccoRoadSportsRadio.com, also coming to you on NGSC Sports Network and also on WWBG 1470 AM and WGOB 980 AM and 96.7 FM. We are also streaming on all major uh, social media platforms. And believe me, we have another busy, busy week in store for you on Frankly Speaking Baseball. Let's go ahead. Let's get started by welcoming in our co-host from the score. Let's welcome in Brett Wiseman. Brett, how you doing, buddy? It's September. Best time of year, Larry. I'm good. I'll tell you what. You have said it. We're going to get to some of that. Actually, we're going to get to that story right away. And I mean right away because... Somebody must have lit a fire under the Houston Astros. They are on fire. I mean, this team is just playing incredible baseball. Listen to this. 50 hits, 16 homers in their last three games, all two of eight, five homers in seven innings. Let's talk about this Houston Astros team that has pretty much has the Texas Rangers now Looking from the outside in, as now the Rangers are not just um, in third place in the division, but they're also um, looking to try and get back in the wild card race as they are now a half game behind in that race. Teams are com- complete opposites, Larry, of where they were um, uh, e- even a month ago at this point. Um, it- it's crazy how these two teams have flip-flopped while while they've been kind of going in opposite directions of each other, there's a third team that we need to mention here in this division that That's is right. not just wedged their foot in the door. They're halfway into the door frame right now. This is a this is a three-way fight at this point. The Mariners very possibly could win this division. Uh, and we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, how we thought we were, you know, the Rangers were probably going to be able to figure it out. They've got a veteran experienced manager. They've got a really good roster. They haven't been able to figure it out yet. And we've got what, three weeks left now. There are about three or four weeks left in the regular season. What, 25 games, I think, uh, max left at this point. So I believe 27 um, to be exact. Yep. So each team pretty much has 27 games left. Each team ends the regular season on the same day, on that Sunday. So, you know, when, when you're looking at this from, you know, the landscape of including all three teams in this, I, I definitely look at the Astros right now as the favorite in my proclamation about a month ago uh, that that the uh, the Rangers were the best team in the American League. I obviously did not come to fruition. I, I jinxed them for anything else. But yeah, I think what you're seeing, Larry, is you're seeing 
where many members of this Astros roster have played this style of baseball for the past few years. They've been in the playoff hunt the past few years since 2017, 18, 19, even on through the 60-game COVID year. They played very important games. It's a team that's used to playing important baseball in September. A lot of guys on that Rangers roster, yes, they have Corey Seager. Yeah, there's a handful of other guys that have experience, like Max Scherzer, but you don't have guys like Altuve or Bregman or Verlander uh, or Maldonado or you know any number of guys that are still on that Astros roster that have been a part of these teams for them that have been in the postseason consistently. You've got... 10, 12 names as opposed to two to four names that have been there before on on a Rangers roster. So what you're seeing more with the Astros is the poise that you have to play with at this time of year, whether it's pitching, it's defense, it's timely hitting. The Astros know how to win this time of year as opposed to just winning. The Rangers are trying to out-hit them. It's not the way you beat this team. Yeah, and I'll tell you what. For all those people, Brett, that it was only a couple of years ago, oh, actually more than a couple of years ago, about four or five years ago, the big scandal that happened in Houston with the sign stealing, everybody was saying, well, no wonder why Altuve is the play he is. He knows what's coming. Well, he's shutting up a lot of people now that should have kept quiet to begin with, and now he's proven to everyone that, hey, stealing signs had nothing to do with me being the type of player I am, it's me that's that type of player. Exactly. And and you could throw a couple other guys into that mix, too. You could throw Jordan Alvarez into that mix. You could throw Alex Bregman in there. Um, this is a, a, a lineup that, you know, outside of maybe one or two guys that were on that 2017 team that aren't there anymore, you know, for, for the most part, it's a very talented roster. I didn't even mention... Uh, Alvarez earlier on. We haven't even mentioned Kyle Tucker's name yet. Uh, Abreu. Uh, Abreu, yeah. He was the big ad in the offseason. You talk about Jeremy Pena, who stepped in while Altuve was was hurt uh, the first part of the year. Remember, Altuve missed about the first two months of the season because he got hurt in the World Baseball Classic playing for Venezuela. Uh, yeah. Jeremy Pena stepped in there well and basically forced the Astros' hand that they had to find a spot for his bat because it just played so well. Uh, and then you do what they did at the deadline. You go out and add pitching. Framber Valdez throws a no-hitter the first game after the deadline. I mean, his team has everything, Larry. Not that the Rangers don't have the pieces. Not that the Mariners don't appear to have the pieces. But, you know, it's hard not to trust a team like this that has been there before. I can't with, think of any other with way the to manager. Yeah, with the manager exactly. that's been there before. Exactly. Yes, Bruce Bochy is a very experienced manager. It's his first year with the Rangers. Let's keep that in mind. Dusty Baker has been there. Dusty Baker was brought in to change the culture after the scandal of, all right, everybody is here? We're forgetting about that. Whether you were here or not, that no longer matters. And Dusty right. Baker did a fantastic job of rallying everybody and saying, okay, th that's the then Astros. We got to worry about the now Astros. And ever since he came in to power after A.J. Hinch, it has been a complete flip in terms of mentality and mindset. All they care about is going out winning baseball games. 
Yeah. Well, let's go ahead and let's move on. Um, and, you know, as we said, this is going to go right down to the wire, down to the last three to four weeks of the season. And I'll tell you what, this is definitely going to be the division to definitely watch in this pennant races that are coming up. Now we're going to go to a little bit more disappointing story, uh, maybe sickening story. Uh, but it's, you know, sometimes we say, when is enough enough? And enough is enough. You know, Los Angeles Dodgers pitcher Julio Urias, I think I said that right. I had to get that out, right? Urias. Urias, yes. You know, suspended not for the first time, Brett. People forget in 2019 he was suspended for domestic violence. Now again he's suspended. He's on what? They call it administrative leave. You know, I think the term is the, you know, the restricted list or whatever, but – but either way, either way we look at this, this is definitely, first of all, what he's doing is wrong, crazy, foolish, and should, should not be put up with by anyone. And this is the second time. Okay, you know what? Not that I say with the first time you let him off because he's still committing a major crime here, hitting a young lady. But now it's your second time. At what point is it going to be before Major League Baseball says enough is enough? You know, get the heck out of here. I don't know if it's just like a plague with Dodgers pitchers either because as soon as, uh, what was his name? Uh, Trevor Bauer. Trevor Bauer, yep. I almost said Walker Bueller, but that's not, no. As soon as Trevor Bauer went to the Dodgers, (laughs) as soon as Trevor Bauer went to the Dodgers, boom, scandal. But again, beside the point, he had a history, right? This had happened before. Right? How are we going to look at this as the Dodgers looked at the first one of, oh, this is an isolated incident, yada, yada. Look, whether it's Julio Orius or Ray Rice or Trevor Bauer or, you know, Francisco Mejia, whoever, no domestic abuse is a quote-unquote isolated incident. It is... Proof of a problem. It's also a felony. Yep. So to know that as an organization, continue forward, and now it happens again, it reflects really badly upon you as an organization, and it reflects very badly upon your values as an organization. The Dodgers have to take a hard... Dodgers have to take a hard look in the mirror here because this is now the second of their starting pitchers in three years that has been lengthily suspended because of something like this. Yeah, and you know, I'm not, you know, I'm not, you know, there in Los Angeles, but two people on the same team, it could be a coincidence. Nevertheless, you have to take a stronger stance, I think, because it is now. Really, it's over three incidents because you had the Bauer incident. Now you have two by Urias. That is a trend because, you know, not that, you know, it's your fault or the organization's fault, I should say, that uh, Julio is doing this silly, stupid stuff. But at the same time, you know, if you would have punished more severely, which they did punish Bauer severely, maybe Urias would learn. Urias would learn, but he didn't learn. Now something drastically has to be done so that the next person knows, hey, I'm not going to do this. 
this is not only going to ruin my relationship with my spouse, but it's going to also ruin my career. Guys have to be aware of consequences. And to a certain extent, we've seen it throughout the years, whether it's in Major League Baseball, yep. whatever sport, professional athletes a lot of times seem to think that they are above the law, that they are absolved of consequences for their actions. Um, that day is law would never existed, but the thought of it should be long gone. Um, again, for this to be the second time this has happened means the Dodgers knew and the Dodgers believed and trusted Julio Orias when he probably told them, yeah, it was this, that, and the other thing. I'm getting help, anger management classes, whatever. Clearly, whatever help he got has either been thrown out the window or flat out did not work and went one ear in one ear and out the other. Well, you know what? The Dodgers here are also have their priorities incorrect. Their priority back then was getting him to play for them because of the type of player he was when, in fact, it should have been the issue he was facing with the domestic violence. This guy should face jail time for what he did. It's not He's not a first-time offender. He is a second-time offender, and, you know, in due time, we'll find this out. But this is an unnecessary thing that the Dodgers should have to even hear about yet lose a play over because it should have never happened to begin with. Let's go ahead. Let's move on. You and I talked last week. Um, whoa, my screen just got really, really big here. I'm trying to make it smaller here. We're going to try this. Well, I don't know what happened here, guys. I'm not good with this stuff. But anyway, I can still do my stuff. All right. As long as you guys can see me, I'm okay, I guess. But, you know, we talked about Aaron Judge last week. Um, excuse me. We talked about Aaron Boone last week and how I feel, you know, I don't care what you say or who says it. There is no way this guy should be back. And Aaron Judge comes out today or yesterday and says he would like to see Aaron Boone back. He's the guy. I disagree with Judge. And first of all, I personally don't think Judge should have any say on whether who manages the team and who doesn't manage the team. He is a player. Sure, you want him to be happy with the manager, but at the end of the day, this manager continues to fail in New York, had a miserable year, although, although they have won eight of their last ten games, but I think it's a little bit too late uh, to save Aaron Boone's job. I agree with you 100%. Um, and I get it from Aaron Judge's perspective, too. He's not just going to outright blurt out with 26 games of the season left that he wants his manager gone. No, pl no player is going to do that, let alone your superstar is not going to come out publicly say he wants the manager gone. Players know better than to publicly get themselves involved in those kinds of things. But... I, I don't think Aaron Judge really had a choice as to, you know, his two choices were I want him to stay or I don't comment on personnel matters <clears throat> to copy the uh, Baltimore Orioles ownership uh, view on things. Um, no. Aaron Boone's lost that clubhouse, period. Whether anybody wants to come out and publicly say it or not, 
it is clear and evident that Aaron Boone has lost that clubhouse in terms of the trust, in terms of the belief. He's lost that below him in the clubhouse. He's also lost the trust and belief of the front office. Yeah, and, and I agree with you, and I in no way, shape, or form believe this guy will be back as the new head coach. Let's keep it going, my friend. Orioles, they're remaining hot. Now they have a three-and-a-half game lead on the second-place Tampa Bay Rays. They're going into Boston um, on a five-game road-winning streak. And, uh, you know, like I said, they're handling this like, like they've been there before when they have not been there before. Now, you talk about this team, Brett. I was watching some of the game last night. They were playing, I think it was versus Los Angeles, the Angels, and they won big again. But when you look at this team, I mean, I got to see Anthony Santander again in another home run. He's been in 261, 27 homers, 82 RBIs, Brett. But I'm still amazed at the top three pitches on this team. I mean, you look at Kramer, 11 and 5. You got Gibson, who, um, what, is 4 and 8. You got, I believe it's Bradish, who is 10 and 8. But you know what the main thing on this team that really separates this team and why they win games? And you, people say the bullpen, yes, when Batista's healthy, he's incredible. There's no doubt about this. But this starting pitching staff, for the most part, take away a few games, they go six innings or more so that the bullpen doesn't need to be used as much as other bullpens. And for a lot of success, you always hear people say, if you go at if you don't go at least six innings, you're not doing a good job. These pitchers on Baltimore, starting pitchers, are doing their job. Yeah, absolutely. And and we've touched on it ad nauseum uh, throughout the last month to two months about this pitching staff. It's just it's it's been so consistent, Larry. Rotation to bullpen. They have the pieces. They have the performance. But this time of year. I mean, pitching becomes so much more important. This pitching staff has not lost traction. They haven't lacked consistency. There, there, there's been no drop off, no fall off. This has been the same, you know, five, six innings. Every guy that goes out there gets a quality start, leaves it to the bullpen, trusts the bullpen. Offense does what it has to do. It, you know that. There's not really a ton to analyze because the Orioles, the way that they're able to do things right now, they're just putting everything to rest. Yeah, and it's just incredible. And I'll tell you what, this is well-deserved. I mean, really well-deserved. I mean, they're playing well. Uh, the manager's doing their jobs. I mean, all aspects of this team is really, really playing well. Talk about another team, Brett, that's playing well. The Cubbies, I, I know as much as you don't like to hear it, they're inching closer and closer to Milwaukee. I believe it's one and a half games now that they are behind Milwaukee. Here's another one that can go right down to the wire, um, and I think it is. But, you know, also when you look at this wild card race, which the Cubs are obviously in, the Miami Marlins, I mean – what can you say about that? Right now, they have moved in the Marlins, the third in the wild card spot. Number three, you know, 
we always say, oh, Miami, they're going to fall off. They're going to fall off. And they find another way to keep squeezing in there, squeezing in there. And listen to this. Jorge Soler, 35 homers, 35 homers in this wild card race. You got Arizona, 0.5 back. Cincinnati, 0.5 back. San Francisco, by the way, only 2.5 back. But, you know, we always hear of L.A. de la Cruz. L.A. de la Cruz in Cincinnati. Well, Miami has a de la Cruz as well. His name, is, I believe, is um, is it Brian, I believe. Brian, the left fielder, and 258, 18 homers, 71 RBIs. Are we starting to believe with three weeks left or three and a half weeks left in the season that the Marlins off the real? I, I think all the credit in the world, Larry, has to go to, it's got to go to Skip Schumacher. Um, the job that he has done as the manager of this ball club cannot be understated. Um, and just the, the culture shift and the culture shock that he's been able to carry out, it's its just been nothing short of spectacular. Um, he's getting more out of the same talented guys on this roster that have been there the last couple of years. He's getting more out of those guys than Don Mattingly ever dreamed of getting out of them. And you add in guys like Jorge Soler that came into the offseason. You look at a guy like Jake Berger that they brought in at the trade deadline who has been absolutely mashing ever since he came over from the Chicago White Sox. Luis Arias, huh, from Minnesota. Luis Arias, yes. The story of the season, really. Um, with As far as his chase for 400, I don't think he's going to get there, but he's going to get pretty darn close. I mean, there's nobody that makes contact in the in the game right now better than that guy. Um, Sandy Alcantara had kind of a struggling first half, uh, but now he's back to pitching like the guy that won the Cy Young last year. Um, I think they are for real, especially when you look at where Arizona is right now. We kind of thought that Arizona was going to stay on the same track and squeak into that third wild card. We thought Miami was going to be the team that fell off. It's been vice versa. The Diamondbacks have been falling off slowly but surely, and as they've started to sink, uh, the Marlins have begun to swim. And they're only a half game back to uh, the um, the Arizona Diamondbacks, so it's going to be a fun three and a half weeks, folks. We're going to have a wild card race that you've never seen a wild card race like this one. When we talk about Miami's holding the third spot by a half a game over, once again, Arizona, Cincinnati, San Francisco, the Cubs are battling for first place against Milwaukee. Oh, baby, this wild card race, these races are going to be great, and that's what baseball is all about. Well, folks, you know, time goes by quickly. I'll tell you what. We could do a three-hour show, except neither of us have time to do a three-hour show. But it's incredible, incredible, incredible. Enjoy this, folks. Enjoy these next three and a half weeks because – it's going to be enjoyable. For Larry Frank, alongside Brett Wiseman, we'll see. Well, next segment, we're going to have an interview, I heard. An interview. So we're going to go ahead and do that interview. Enjoy the interview. And after the interview, uh, we'll go ahead and say we'll see you next week at same time, same place. Enjoy.
Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Frankly Speaking Baseball. What a great segment we just had. Myself, Brett Wiseman, talking about what's going on in MLB baseball. Well, now we're going to go back into the baseball archives. That's right, Frankly Speaking Sports Interviews, some of the best interviews we've done since we've been around. And we're going to go back to one we did two years ago. And I want to go ahead and take you back to an interview we did with uh, you know, former outfielder, great outfielder, Glenn Wilson. Let's go ahead and let's listen to that um, interview in its entirety. Remember, there might be something saying like the Phillies are in first place, this or that. Remember, this interview was done two years ago. So let's go ahead, let's listen, and let's enjoy. Thrill and pleasure to introduce to you former Major League Baseball right fielder and 1985 All-Star for the Philadelphia Phillies. Let's welcome in Glenn Wilson. Glenn, how you doing tonight? I'm good. How y'all doing? We're doing good, buddy. Let me move this around a little bit. There we go. Now we got you a little bit better there, my friend. All right. Hey, Glenn, let me ask you. We're, we're in... August, let's call it the middle of August. We're close enough. If you were on one of the teams, obviously teams now that are in the race, they're fighting for wild cards, they're fighting for division titles. But, you know, I don't think a lot of the fans understand that even those teams that are not in the race, these players still have a lot to play for because a lot of them are playing for jobs. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, it doesn't matter if you're 15 games out, if you're two games out. You're playing for – a lot of the guys are playing for next year's contract. Not everybody's Bryce Harper. So those guys right there are on the cusp, kind of like I was after the 84 season. So in 84, I had that really bad year. I'd just been traded over. So it was do or die for me in 1985. So I was either going to be in the big leagues and playing every day, or I was going to be out of baseball because I was in my, well, that would have been my fourth full season. Right. Now, you know, you start off in Detroit. Your first rookie year, you bat 292. And then uh, the next year, you hit 268, 11 homers, 65 RBIs. Everything's starting to come through, and then you traded. Were you surprised that you had traded? Uh, no, the talk had started after the 83, or actually during the second half of the 83 season. Uh, the rumor mill was rampant because you had Howard Johnson, remember the Mets, great home run hitter, and yep. I – come up together. So the decision was, the big decision was who they're going to keep in right field. Would it be myself? Would it be Kirk Gibson? Now, at the time, obviously, Gibson, being from Michigan, you know, you're going to keep him, but he hadn't done anything yet. He's been there four years now. And hadn't done anything, striking out constantly, but you could see the potential. So, you know, 
obviously they made the right decision for one year, but after that, you know, it took them another, I think it was 14 years before they even got back to a world series. So, you know, when you, when you make moves like that, um, like Sparky and I, we really didn't get along anyway, because I was that kid that was green. He didn't like rookies, number one. And then number two, you know, there I am, this um, very confident player. And I didn't shy away from the media back then. Uh, I made sure that if I was asked a question, I answered it honestly. And that got me in trouble with Sparky. And I got in his doghouse. All because, well, you got to remember, I'm a 23-year-old kid. Uh, and I get to Detroit, and all of a sudden, I'm hitting over 400 after my first uh, two weeks in the big leagues. And then he goes to send me down because I've got two options left because now those outfielders that were hurt when he needed me and Howard Johnson, uh, he had to send us down. Well, I didn't understand that. I thought, well, you know, that's why you drafted me as your number one pick was to get to the big leagues. So I'm here, I'm doing well. Why am I being sent down? And I actually quit. I actually told Sparky that, well, if you're sending me down, I'm going home. And I took my uniform off as I was walking off the field. And, and if it hadn't have been for Roger Craig stopping me after I got dressed, because I, I was coming home. Back then, I was making $33,000, and I could work in the chemical plant here and make that. So I went up. Roger Craig said, will you go up to Jim Campbell's office? And I said, yeah, okay. So I'll go up to Jim Campbell's office, the GM, and he explained how baseball works. And then I realized, oh, okay, now I understand. I have options. They don't. They got guaranteed contracts of three and four hundred thousand dollars. Larry Herndon, uh, Jerry Turner, you had Chet Lemon, and you had Kirk Gibson. So you had four outfielders already. So I was the odd guy out. It didn't matter if I was hitting five hundred with five home runs already. So once I understood the game, I was okay with that. I wasn't happy, but I was okay. Right. Now, you know, you were a solid 265 lifetime hitter, but, you know, you were also known to have one of the better arms in all of Major League Baseball. A couple of things I want to ask you about the defensive side of it. First of all, how much, you know, satisfaction did you get out of pegging a guy at home plate? And then talk about the year where you threw – you know, you think after throwing one runner out at first base, people would get the idea, but you threw three runners out at first base in the same year. Yeah. Um, what happened was uh, I was type A personality. I would get bored in the outfield, even in right. And I noticed playing at the vet on the AstroTurf, the ball got to me quicker. And that fact alone made me realize with my arm, I can make stuff happen out here. I can bait guys 
on that ball that would be hit down the first baseline and hit the corner. Uh, I had the ball girl actually move towards the field if the ball was going to hit the corner as I'm sprinting over, you know, to the line to get the ball. Well, if she came forward, I knew it was going to hit the corner and I could take the angle and cut it off, spin, wheel, make the throw to second base and possibly get an uh, assist there. So then you had the other factor. If she stepped backwards, I knew the ball's going to the fence. So now I can cut it off, hit the cutoff man, and have a chance to get the runner at third if he's fast enough to try for a triple. So the throwing at first base actually started because I recognized the speed of the game in the National League with all the turf fields. And I I just loved it. And I could see and sense the fans' excitement when a base hit was hit to right with a runner at second base. And so all of a sudden I realized, you know, my pitchers, Charlie Hudson, Kevin Gross, even Carlton would pitch away with two strikes. So I knew that if they got a the hitter, didn't matter who it was, especially Keith Moreland, they're going to punch the ball to right field. So I would cheat in and try to get that ball on one hop and make the throw to first base. So I ended up getting, yeah, three guys in one year. And then later on, I got another guy um, when I was, uh, let's see, Dennis Seckersley, a pitcher. I had a chance one time to get Nolan Ryan, but I thought, you know, I might not ought to make that throw and get him because I still had six innings to face him possibly. And I didn't <laughs> want to lose my head. <laughs> so talk but, about the yes, – I about... loved throw. I, I, I literally loved it. Yeah, um, and you did it real well. You know, talk about 1985. You have an unbelievable year. You're about 275. 14 homers, you over 100 RBIs. Uh, before we talk about the All-Star game that you went to, talk about what seemed to be different that year or what was it that finally clicked in your head that got you going? You know, it, it was it was the fact that I was hitting in the five hole behind Mike Schmidt, okay? And by the end of May, he was hitting a buck 81, I think is what it was. And every time I came to the plate, it seemed like either the bases were loaded or there were runners in scoring position. Now, I never in my life had thought of driving in 100 runs. Never thought about that. I just liked playing baseball. I liked attention. I was the baby of the family. I had an older brother that shoved the game down my throat, which helped me know the game really well. So what I did was I just started getting all these doubles with runners at second and third and realized at the all-star break, I'm at 64 RBIs, I think it was. Yeah, 64 at the break. And I'm thinking, well, that's, that, that's okay. But I remember, 84 was so bad. I had actually made a statement to one of the channels there in Philadelphia. I think it was channel four uh, with one of the sportscasters. 
it wasn't Howard, but it's somebody else, because uh, Howard was doing radio. But I actually told them that you will see a different Glenn Wilson this year. So I actually prophesized I was going to have a good year. Now, I didn't know Schmidt was going to struggle like that. So by Schmidt struggling, it gave me an opportunity to drive in runs. Then towards the end of the year, I'm at 91 going into Chicago with, I think, 12 games left. And I hit a home run in the Grand Slam in the first game of a four-game series in Chicago. So now I'm at 96. I'm like, oh, I got this now. I go to Montreal. I didn't drive in anymore in, in Chicago. I uh, drove in one in Montreal, and then we had a four-game series with Pittsburgh to end it. And I get to 100, and then I get to 102, and we still had a game left. But John Felsky came to me and said, do you want to take a night off? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I kind of do. And because we had celebrated really hard after my 100th RBI. I mean, the, the whole team, everybody, they were thrilled for me. Where I was just like, this was supposed to happen. But looking back at it, I go, you know, that's probably the worst thing that could have happened because now they're going to expect that. <laughs> and so, uh, but here's what it did do that nobody ever brings up. The next year, I'm hitting behind Schmidt now again, 1986. Guess what? He gets his third MVP because he's got somebody behind him that can drive in 100 runs. So it worked out good for me because I got a guaranteed contract for three and a half years and ended up being four or three years and an option, which ended up the option got picked up. So, and it worked out for Schmidt because he got his third MVP and that locked him for the Hall of Fame. 500 home runs was going to lock him, but that locked him up right there. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you also had a great year defensively. You, what, you had 30, um, I'm sorry, 18. Can you hear me okay? Was that? No, okay. I was making sure you could hear me okay. Yeah. Um, you had 18 assists, right? In that year, talk about your all-star experience. You make the all-star, the only time making the all-star um, yeah. game. What was that like playing amongst all the best players in the Major League Baseball? Only time I'd ever been nervous for any athletic event. And you got to remember, you know, I played four sports in high school. Joe Namath was my hero. Uh, you know, I played basketball, I pole vaulted, I high jumped, I could slam dunk a volleyball when I was a junior in high school. Uh, I was, a, you know, winning all kinds of awards uh, for football, baseball, basketball, track. I went to college on a football scholarship, started as a freshman at wide receiver, uh, made all conference as a freshman in, in football, uh, baseball. The only reason I got uh, into playing baseball in college was the receivers coach, I was a receiver, asked me to play. And I and I he, I asked him, I said, well, will it get me out of spring football? He said, yeah. I said, okay, I'll play. So I didn't have to go lift all the weights and do all the running. I got to go over there and hang out with the lazy group. 
and baseball just came easy to me because I had an older brother that was eight years older than me that made me start playing at three and a half through age 16 with him because he wanted to be the next Mickey Mantle. And so I didn't have a choice. It was either play and get beat up or, or get beat up. Um, so I chose to play because he was the meanest guy in our town, which was 15 minutes from where the Astrodome would be built. And my father had passed away when I was five years old. So I didn't know him. I only knew my older brother, my mother, who was an athlete. She was an all-state basketball player in Mississippi, five years. That means in the eighth grade, she was on the varsity basketball team and uh, was all-state five years. She played pro basketball. And she was a woman that was an athlete. She played uh, league softball into her 40s. And there was no... Uh, you know, huggy, feely, lovey, dovey. It was, hey, suck it up, grind. I remember I was going to pitch an all-star game in Little League, had 104 fever. She wrapped me up in blankets to kill the fever, and I went out and pitched. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> there was no day offs. And that's what carried me through my entire career is that, I mean, if I was hurt, I would sneak off to a doctor and get a shot of cortisone, some, something to numb it up, and I was going to play. The yeah. time I was mad about baseball was if I wasn't in the lineup, and I had to hide it. <laughs> That's hard to do. Yeah, I'm sure it is. Well, talk about your success versus Randy Johnson. You hit the first two homers ever offered that he's ever given up, was to you then the following year early in the year he had another homer offering what was it was it the fastball was it or just you just loved facing it no actually it was his first game okay uh my first at bat we, i hit a fastball for a homer the left center next at bat um he throws me a slider i hit it out uh, so yeah I mean, I loved any, it didn't matter lefty or righty, if they threw over the top and threw hard, oh, I love that. Especially if they threw a curveball. If they threw a slider, I had to work a little harder mentally. But if they were fastball, curveball guys, I felt pretty good about that. But uh, tell, uh, uh, Talk about the first time you got the pitch in the major leagues. Oh, you were playing the New York Mets. Now, you said you were nervous when you were in the All-Star game. you telling me you weren't nervous when you were on that hill? I did. No, no. Uh, I was actually imitating Nolan Ryan. <laughs> when I would play catch in between innings, I would pretend I was pitching every, every inning. So, no, no. No, that's what I tell kids to this day. If if you hope, if you think, or if you worry, you might as well quit because you're not going to make it. you got to have what I call the I know factor. And even if you have that, you're going to end up with a career like mine. Ten years, 
uh, one all-star game, uh, you know, fortunate to uh, be Philly of the year one year, uh, but you're going to be in the lineup a lot if you figure out a way to do something defensively that helps keep your team in the game because it is a team game. Even though today's game is more of a home run game, you're going to be in that lineup if you're hitting home runs or you're doing something defensively. That's what's going to keep you in the lineup. And yeah. then they're going to ask you, hey, or tell you, we're going to give you a day off. I never had a manager except one, John Felsky, tell me that, look, unless you come to me, you're going to be in the lineup every night. You drove me in 100 runs in 85. In 86, you're going to be in the lineup every day. Well, I was in the lineup every day. And the only coach that I'll ever give any credit to that helped me was Dave Bristol. Dave Bristol was the third base coach in 1985. He called my oldest brother and asked him, what made me tick? And he told him, piss him off. Just piss him off. Because if you made me mad, I was going to play even better. And for some reason, I couldn't figure it out. Dave Bristol, every week, at least twice a week, sometimes three, would go out of his way to piss me off. <laughs> and at the end of the year, I gave him a really nice tip because I realized what had happened. Uh, I talked to my brother and he said, yeah, he called me. So they owe Dave Bristol. And, you know, the correlation between him and Sparky Anderson's was never good because all those players in the 72, 73, uh, 74 Reds, Dave Bristol had in the minor leagues at each level. Bristol got fired. Sparky inherited all those players. Morgan, Perez, Rose, yet uh, uh, Cepeda. I mean, they were loaded. You had Bobby Tolan. You had Bill Goetz. You had all the pitching also. So uh, Sparky inherited that. And then when Sparky got to Detroit, his ego got really big. And he and I, it was a good thing I was traded. He, he and I would have come to blows. So who was your favorite man of the year? Paul Lowens, the Pope. Yeah, yeah. He left me alone. He, he let me play. Uh, he just he put me in left field where I wasn't comfortable, though. That was the only thing. Uh, he did not know my arm. He didn't know I had that arm yet. For some reason, all he was hoping – I think the Phillies were hoping they were getting a, either a 290 hitter or a 25 home run guy because you got to remember I hit 12 home runs with 350 something at bats my rookie year, then 11 home runs uh, my second year hitting me out of five, seven, eight hole. And we knew in Detroit in 83, we finished four games back of Baltimore who beat the Phillies in the 83 World Series. So we knew we were good, but I just happened to be the guy that was the trigger 
to get him Willie Hernandez. And, yep. you know, so that's just how God wanted it to work out. Yeah. Now, who was the toughest pitcher you ever faced? Uh, oh, well, it's easy. Tom Glavin, uh, Steve Trout, any lefty that turned it over and kept it away from me uh, and threw slow. Uh, I, you know, I, I wasn't a patient guy. You know, I couldn't, I couldn't stand there and take uh, strike one. No, I, I was geared, fastball. Uh, I needed guys that threw hard. If you were going to rest me, rest me against a lefty like Glavin, like Smoke, I mean, like uh, yeah, even Greg Maddox, because the way he could make the ball move late, kept it down, uh, knee high. Give me the guys with the high fastball, letter high. Those were the guys I was going to get. And over-the-top curveballs. Or, you know, 60-40, uh, 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 what, what's it called? One to three curveballs or sliders. Not the guy that throws the three to six slider or three to nine slider. The ones that slid straight across the plate, they gave me trouble. Righties that gave that had that break they gave me trouble. Cecilio Guante, guys like that. Uh, but, you know, and anybody that threw slow. <laughs> like, you're in the Wrigley Field, the wind's blowing in, you got Steve Trout pitching, the grass is up to your ankles. <laughs> I was going to, you got to run it first. I was pretty much a 6-4-3 guy right there. And I was going to ground out. <laughs> Double play, we're gone. <laughs> Let me ask you this. Do you like what the game about has evolved in today, or did you like it better than you did? Oh, no, I like today's game. Oh, I would I would have. Uh, oh, shoot. Staying on your back leg and getting the launch. I mean, that's what I've done my whole life. But when I got to the National League, in the American League, you could do that. Because the ballparks were shorter. Uh, nationally, I mean, those were big ballparks in my in my day. Uh, I would love today's game. I tell you what, I would love to manage in today's game because of the way the players are made now. They're made just like I was as a kid. You know, they're staying on that back leg. They're talking launch angle. I know exactly what they're doing. It's easy to see. So. Yeah, I mean, today's game, if I'm a fan, you know, of baseball year-round, and live close to the ballpark, I'd be there every night. Now, do you still pull for the Phillies? Oh, absolutely. I How, so what do, you, what do you think of this year? I like it. Yeah. There, baby. I got one, so I'm tickled to death. And, uh, I mean, that what, they're right now they're uh, – Right in first place by a half game over the Mets. Yes. Um, how do you look at them finishing this year? Well, as long as they're pitching, uh, the bullpen, <laughs> Middleton needs to tell those guys to get to work, fix that bullpen, especially middle and late relief, because, you know, you got the offense, you got the defense, you got pitching. Pitching is what secures games right that's wins uh 
hitting an offense can get you wins. Pitching secures wins. So you got you got plenty of starters. I mean, I, so I'm like looking at y'all, and I'm going, you know what? Be in that really World Series. Yep. I mean, they got a good team. What do you think of Girardi? I love Girardi. Are you kidding? I mean, I liked him when he was with the Yankees. I, I knew they got a good manager when they got him. I liked him in New York. He's not a Philly guy. You, you got to understand Philly fans. You got to love the fact that their passion runs so deep that they may cut your throat if you do the wrong thing. You got to learn to accept that. I don't know if Joe's done that yet. You know, uh, you got to be tough. You got to be a fighter if you want to play in Philly. Come on, man. They've made a statue of a guy that made a movie about a fighter, Rocky. Come on. You got to fight if you're going to play for a Philly team or manage the Phillies. You got to fight. You can't go out there and be nice to them umpires. I mean, they're mad already, those umpires. You know, you got to know how to work them as much as you do your own players. But you got to be able to call their home and find out what are they made of? What is inside that heart? What's in there? You know, do I have a Glenn Wilson or do I have a Steve Jelts, Jeff Stone, you know, easy going, Milt Thompson, go along to get along guy. You give me those guys, I'll show you guys that are going to finish 500 maybe. You give me guys like Mike Smith that's going to fight you to the end, Gary Maddox, Steve Carlton, Tug McGraw that fight to the bitter end, Darren Dalton, you're going to win. You're going to win because they're going to research and do their homework about their own players. Middleton needs to go to work and, you know, make a move here for the pitching. Let's secure victories. Last question before I let you ride. Okay. Has Bryce Hopper been everything you thought he would be? I think so. Yeah, I think he has. Uh, I'm a, I, I worry, of course, but I'm not around him. I've never met him. But you got to remember, that guy had so much hype before he ever even got there. They yep. were they were showing his high school home run derby games on television. Yep. That guy was made to play in the big leagues. He's a player, man. Yeah, he's a gamer. He'll fight. He fought somebody. What was it? Uh, Papelbon. He fought yep. him tonight. So, yeah, yeah, he's everything. He's everything, and he can be more. The, the thing you got to watch for is the guys that are making the money. Are they still going to hit the gym in the offseason? That's what it's about now. Today's game is about the gym. When I came up, Sparky did not allow weights. We couldn't lift weights. Illegal. Gone. If you were caught lifting weights, cut your throat. Gone. Today's game, different story. Yep. Well, listen, Glenn, I want to thank you very much for allowing me the time to speak to you tonight on Frankly Speaking Sports. I've enjoyed it. All right, my friend. Stay safe and good luck to your Phillies. Thank you. Tell my Philly fans I still love them. I miss them.
All right, my friend. Thank you. <laughs> All right. That was that interview we did two years ago. Two years ago, we did it with Glenn Wilson. Well, folks, we're out of time. Until next week, we'll see you again on Frankly Speaking Baseball.